And the prophet said it well. <clears throat> Great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new. How often, class, do you remember? Every morning. Every morning. Thank you, Dean and Cheryl and, and uh, Gary. Thank you, choir and orchestra. And uh, Pat, you played in all three services today, didn't you? You did. Go take the afternoon off. <laughs> Tell Larry I said so. <laughs> Please turn to the book of Song of Solomon. The Song of Songs, Solomon's great love song, seven of them all together. We had one of our young men said, I sure would be glad when the pastor gets off of this book. He draws pictures about what I'm preaching about, and he's had to put away his pen and pencil the last few weeks. We've talked about the romantic power of a woman and the romantic power of a man, and uh, he's having a hard time drawing that out. But uh, we, will, uh, we will try to finish the book. There are actually seven songs. It is uh, the song of marriage, the song of courtship, the song of betrothal, but today we look at the song of challenge. It's about what happens in a relationship, every relationship. You may be madly in love with each other. I am telling you, there will be challenges to that relationship. You may be best of friends. Hear me. There will be challenges to that friendship. In the body of Christ, you may all be filled with the Spirit, prayed up, blue chip, grade A, number one believers, but you're going to have challenges to your relationship. And if you're married and you haven't had a problem, hang on. They'll probably all come at once, right, Brother Gary? <laughs> but it's coming. There are challenges to every relationship. Actually, in the exposition of this, you see the challenge and you see the solution. But I want to give you the three things that happen here. First, in this passage, in our great text, there is a gross miscalculation. A gross miscalculation for the Shulamite, the woman that Solomon married... There were 70 other wives. There were going to be more wives, but this is one he loved. Most of his marriages were political. This one was romance. This one he loved. When you listen to his language in this book, he loved the Shulamite woman. And she goes to sleep one night, and she has a dream. I know that because verse 2, I sleep, but my heart is awake. I'm asleep, but I'm dreaming. What happened? Probably a dream. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Mm, that sounds good. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. He's been out working. I don't know what he was doing, but he says, I am wet from being out in the nighttime. I've been exposed. I, I need uh, just some companionship. So her response is in verse 3. The Shulamite woman says, oh, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? And while she's thinking all these things, trying to figure out, my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. But when I opened for my beloved, he had turned away and was gone. He had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but there was no answer. 
The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. Tell him I am lovesick. I'll tell you, that'll put some sizzle back in your marriage. You call your husband and say, honey, I am lovesick for you. You watch what happens. That's going to be an interesting afternoon when you call him at work. Amen? <laughs> but here is the dream, and notice the miscalculation. And this is what creates the challenge in the relationship. She dreams that she hears him knock. She dreams that he wants to come into her room. Now, remember, the daughters of Jerusalem are the maidens that live around her. And she has finally aroused them and awakened them to go look for him also. Later, we'll see. She says, go find him if you can, daughters, in verse 8. But when she finally decides that even though she's washed her feet and though she's fixed herself all up for night, she now decides that she's going to the door. When she goes to the door, he's gone. He got tired of waiting, and he left. Wow. Has God ever knocked on your door, and you put him off? And you said, oh, no, I've got, to, I've got to consider all these things. I've married a wife. I've got to plow a field. I've got a piece of land I've got to sell. Has God ever knocked on your door, and you missed the chance? Remember, the Shulamite woman represents the body of Christ. Solomon represents Christ himself. She is the bride. He is the groom. And so she's very, very disappointed when she arises. He's gone. I opened. My beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. Folks, I don't care how solid you think your relationship is. There will be times when there will be challenges to that relationship. And here is one. She didn't respond, and he walked away, and she went looking for him and couldn't find him. And as a result, there was distance between her. And him. Now, there's distance sometimes that comes in our relationship with God. There's distance that comes between a man and a woman, between friend to friend, in the body of Christ. There's something happened. She didn't understand his need so that she could respond quickly enough, and he was gone. And when that happens in a relationship, it always causes a challenge. It'll cause a challenge. When you don't understand the other person, so you don't respond to the need, and the result is there is distance, there is separation, there is enmity that develops between the two of you. Has your wife ever not liked something you did, and as a result didn't speak to you for two days? And how does that feel? Oh, you say, no, not us. We never had any problems. Mm. There's an altar for confession here if you'd like to come. But there's a gross miscalculation on her part, and now she's paying the price. Can I just run by six ways I see these challenges coming in a good marriage or in a relationship? There are basically six things that happen here, six reasons for this. Number one, sometimes it's because there's a natural tendency to take each other for granted. Gentlemen, I don't know much about women, but I do know this. You must not take a woman for granted or you are in deep weeds. Do you hear me? Never, never, repeat one more time, never take your spouse for granted. 
Because the moment that happens, you become insensitive to his needs or to her needs. And the moment that happens, there's a miscalculation in the relationship that will create distance. Sometimes it, it happens in our relationship with God. It happens in a marriage. It happens in a friendship. It happens in a courtship. Secondly, sometimes there's a miscalculation in the relationship because of the differences between men and women. There are vast differences between men and women which we fail to take into account. I think of my wife in terms of what I would want, but I've got to go beyond that. That's not just the end. That's only the beginning of a relationship. When you get to the place where you can see through her eyes what she wants, then you can meet her needs. But men and women are different, and we have to account for that. Sometimes it's that difference that accounts for the distance in a relationship in the way men and women think. Women are naturally encouragers and nurturers for the most part. You can stand out here in the lobby on Sunday morning, and when you see a woman come in, she doesn't yell across the lobby to some woman saying, where'd you get that ugly yellow dress? That looks horrible on you. you women don't do that to each other. They walk in on Sunday morning and say, Oh, your hair looks so good today. Well, what did you do to it? Oh, that dress really looks neat on you. Where did you get those shoes? Oh, they, they go terrific with that dress. And they're just, they're just, you know, mothering over each other and loving each other. And they're real kind. That's the way women are. Men walk into the lobby. Have you ever watched men walk into the lobby? Hey, what happened to the Tar Heels last week? Especially if you're a Tario fan. All right. Hey, Joe, you're getting fat. <laughs> you never hear a woman say that, call across the lobby. Hey, Marie, you're getting fat. You never hear that. They don't ever say that. But men will do that. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a difference between the way men and women relate to each other. And men don't think anything about it. Hey, Bubba. <laughs> you don't hear a woman calling a woman Bubba. <laughs> Besides, that's a... That's a, 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 a masculine form. In the feminine, it's babe. <laughs> but, but here is a difference. One of the reasons why we have challenges to relationship. Third, sometimes there's an uncertainty about how the other person is thinking or feeling about us. And when you don't know your spouse, when you don't know your partner, there's an uncertainty. Sometimes there... Um, is a variety of uh, moods that we go through and rhythms, the rhythms of life. Very, very important. Man, that was a great discovery to me. I didn't know about moods or rhythms of life till I got married. But I want to tell you, if just because she is this sweet thing before marriage, don't think she's always going to be like that after marriage. And just because he's this handsome, prayed-up, spirit-filled guy who's got all kinds of money, after you're married, the guy won't, you got to jerk him with a chain to get him to church. You got to steal the credit card in order to get him to spend any money. And here, before you were married, he was so generous. He was so godly. And now all of a sudden, there's this transformation. What happens? Sometimes there are moods and rhythms that we fail to understand and we don't learn to move with each other in the moods and rhythms. And sometimes challenges occur in relationships because of our own self-preoccupation. We get preoccupied with 
who we are and what we are, and we don't think of the other person. I called someone the other day about a death, and his first reaction was, well, this person's first reaction was, uh, oh, what else is going to happen to me? See, he's totally preoccupied with self. What else is going to happen to me? Wait a minute, what about the rest of the people? What about those closest to the deceased? See, when we get preoccupied with ourselves, we tend to do all these other things then. We tend to forget those. And as a result, there's a distance that comes up in a relationship. And there was a distance that occurred. Oh, when that happens between us and God. And sometimes it does because Joe Smith prayed and got healed. I had the same thing Joe Smith had. I prayed I didn't get healed. Where is God? Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God act for me the way he acted for Joe Smith? And with disappointing expectations, there comes distance between us and God. And you see that in the life of David over and over again. You see the distance he calls out, he cries out, where are you, God? And in relationships, you might as well expect that. Now, what's the answer? Look at the second great section of our text. There is not only the gross miscalculation, but there's a grand or a great appreciation here, beginning in verse 9. I love this. He says, what is your beloved? More than another beloved, the daughters of Jerusalem say. You know, that's a good way of asking, what do you see in him? Why are you in love with him? That's what that's about. They've been aroused to go up and, and awaken to go out and look for, for the king. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved? Why, why, why do you care about him when he does this to you? That you so charge us, meaning that you get us up and send us out to go try to find him. What is there about him? Now, immediately... A 20th century American woman would have used that as an opportunity to scold the guy. They would have said, he's a rascal. That guy, he does this to me all the time. He's a louse. I don't know why I ever married him. There's nothing good in him. He's, he's just like his father. We would have turned on him. But I want you to see the words of the Shulamite. The Shulamite says, oh, how refreshing. My beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. Have you ever looked at his eyes? Have you ever told your husband, honey, your eyes are doves' eyes, and they're fitly set. They look like rivers of waters washed with milk and properly set in your head. Oh, are you handsome? You ever said that? Yeah, try that sometime. And she goes on, his cheeks are like a bed of spices. This really gets away with me. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Mm, she says, I love to kiss him. His lips drip with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory. Oh, he's, you know, just like most of us here today. He's chiseled all muscle. Like chiseled ivory, just a specimen to behold. <laughs> Man. Somebody said, where was it the other night? It was at the prayer, prayer meeting. Jimmy Kearns had told, I mean, at the prayer celebration, Jimmy Kearns had told uh, Sandra not to worry, just get up and look at everybody as if they were in their underwear. And that's the way to speak to them. And nobody will look pompous to you anymore. By the way, I don't do that. I haven't tried that. 
It's a stretch. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I think that is one of the most incredible examples in Scripture. When she was disappointed, when she saw his impatience, when he disappeared, when he knocked for her, and she could not find him, and he did not come back. She did not excoriate him. She praised him and described, described him in the grandest of terms. Now, I just would like to exhort you. This is an exhortation and an admonition. The next time your husband disappoints you, Go call your daughters of Jerusalem. Every one of you got them. You got 25 people whose telephone numbers you know by heart. Besides the 10 that are punched into your automatic dial phone. And you call those women and you tell them everything. You go call one of the daughters of Jerusalem and you say to them, you won't believe my husband. He's white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves. And she will probably hang up on you. <laughs> but wait a minute. There is a, there is a standard for us in our relationship with God that tells us how to deal with disappointment in relationships. Let's go back to Psalm 43 for a moment. Now, there are many examples of this, but I'm going to take Psalm 43. Psalm 43, listen to what David has to say. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Now, this is Psalm 43. Psalm 43, now we're at verse 2. For you are the God of my strength. Now, listen to him. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Lord, where are you? You're so far away. God, I'm being overwhelmed by my enemies, and I need you, and where are you? And you're silent. Come to me, God. I've been praying, and you're not there. How many of you have ever been there where you cried your heart out to God, and you poured it out to God, and you wondered, where are you, Lord? Why are you silent? Why are you quiet? Why aren't you doing something? for my situation. And then suddenly there's a turn in the psalmist. And he says, oh, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me, your light and your truth. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, oh my God, oh God. Now there are three steps that David took when he got to the place where the Shulamite woman might have allowed herself had she not had this one right. And there are always three steps when you feel there's distance between you and anybody. There are always three steps when there's difference between you and God. There are always three steps back to God when, when you know that somehow God has fallen silent. Underline them in your Bibles. First thing to do, he said, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle the end of verse 3. Let them bring me to your holy hill. and Let me go where God is. Let me focus on the nature and the character of God. Let me go just describe who God is. And time and again, when you see the psalmist in trouble and the prophets of the Old Testament in trouble, 
they went to God and focused, started focusing on the character and the nature of God. Now, that's what the Shulamite woman did. Instead of belittling her husband because he had let her down, she bragged on him. Said, oh, what a great man I'm married to. Bless his heart. He let me down, but he's got eyes like a dove, sculpture like a, a sculpture piece of marble. His cheeks are, are ruddy and ro you won't believe what my lover looks like. The second step, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. That's the first step. You know, not long ago, a man said to me, I feel God's been far from me. I feel so distant to God. He said, when, when I feel near to God, I'll come back to church. I said, oh, no, sir, you got it all wrong. It's when you feel like you're farthest from God, that's when you rise up by faith and say, I'm going to the holy temple. I'm going to the sanctuary. I'm going to the hill of God. I want to come back into the presence of God. Let me see who God is all over again. Like, like uh, uh, Isaiah, let me stand in the presence of the Holy One, and then I will get a picture of myself. And that's what she did. She bragged on her husband, and that's what the psalmist did. He headed back to the holy hill and the sanctuary where he could meet God face to face. And folks, when you're down and when you're hurt and when there's pain in your life and there's distance, some of you couples got up this morning and had a disagreement. And you're sitting here right now, you're angry as can be at her. You'd just as soon be sitting on the pew three rows down. But God says, wait a minute. And you're saying, I don't even belong in here. I can't worship the Lord. Oh, yes. When you're in that trouble, that's when you need the God's house most. Rise up. Come to the holy hill. Come to the sanctuary. See the face of God. Dwell on the character of God. Quote again the nature of God and the attributes of God. And the second thing is when you see God, you'll go to the altar. That's the second thing. Confession. Once you see God and you focus on his character, the next thing is there'll be confession. That's what the psalmist said. Then I will go to the altar of God. I'm going to fall on my knees and I'm going to open up and confess my part in this distance. Oh, Lord, I blamed you, but it's not your fault. It's mine. Honey, I blamed you. It's not your fault. It's mine. You know, wives are so forgiving. They can be so forgiving. And we are so dumb sometimes, we, we men. Not always, not always, sometimes. Last night, they moved everything in my study, and I couldn't find my sermon outline. I looked, I went through everything on it. And my wife walked in there and said, what are you looking for? I said, my sermon outline. I said, I just wanted to go over it in my mind. She walked over and says, right here it is. Picked it up off the top of a pile I've been through three times. I said, well, the Lord answered prayer. <laughs> when there's distance in the relationship, first, come to the tabernacle. Secondly, go to the altar, confess. And now watch what he did third. He said, I'm going to God, my exceeding joy, and on the harp, I will praise you, O God, my God. Now start praising God. When you've come to the sanctuary, you make confession. Now start praising the Lord. Why do you think the Bible says, give thanks always for all things? Have you given thanks for your wives' liabilities lately? Have you given thanks for the weaknesses of your husband lately? Have you given thanks for those things that irritate the sin right out of you about him? Have you paused to say, thank you, Lord? 
I'll tell you what, what would be a good exercise for any of us is to take a piece of paper and get real romantic with a legal pad and write down all the things you don't like about your spouse and all the things you do like. You know, I tried that not long ago, and I could only find two, two or three little things, and I found two pages of things I like. And it was amazing that when I started focusing on who she was and then confessing my part in the distance, and then I'm able to praise that God just took that relationship, and he does it with all. It's true in the body of Christ. It's true of friends. He narrows that distance and brings us right back together again. That's God's plan. And that's what happened here with a Shulamite woman. Well, the last thing that is in our text is a, a grand apprehension. She apprehends a truth about her husband she had never apprehended before. Here it is, chapter 6, verse 1. When the daughters of Jerusalem say, Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? We'll go find him. And she says, My beloved has gone to his garden to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. And I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, and he feeds his flock among the lilies. Now, there are two meanings to this text. A, it may mean that he had all these other wives, and when she wasn't available to him and he knocked on the door, he went to one of the others. That his harem was like a garden. I tell you why I don't think that's true. I don't think that's a primary interpretation here. Because he was covered with dew, which indicates he'd been out a long time doing something. And as I carry that over interpretively into the passage, I take it to mean the second thing, that he had a lot of responsibilities and a lot of work to do. And she's saying, I recognize I'm not the only person in his life. I recognize he has other priorities. I recognize that and I let him go. I let him go. I gave up. I, I gave up my enmity. I gave up my bitterness because he let me down. Because I know he's busy. He's got other things to do. Other fish to fry. One of the toughest things in any relationship is learning how to cut each other slack. Yes. I'd love to spend 24 hours a day with my wife. I think I would. Yes, I'd love to have that kind of time. But there are other things that have to be done. Look, there are three things you need to be very careful about. Number one, make sure, make sure in any married relationship that you learn to read the other person's priorities. Know what is valuable to them. The greatest thing about our relationship to God is that he knows who I am and he knows what my gifts are and he doesn't expect more out of me than what he knows I am capable of giving to him. And I rest in that truth. Amen? Now, sometimes that's a tough thing to do. And I've been married for 39 and a half years, and I'm still not sure I'm always able to read my wife's priorities. But I'm trying. Now, do you know how you get a hankering for food sometimes, a certain food? Several weeks ago, you remember I talked about fried chicken? I had a hankering for fried chicken. You know, I wound up at the Kentucky Fried Chicken. There were eight families in there from Calvary buying chicken that day. Well, yesterday, I had a hankering for these oysters. I just had a hankering for oysters. So I told Shirley, I was going out to make some visits. I'm going to get some oysters. I'll bring them back. Now, I love that oyster salad at Nobles. That is one of the best things you ever put in a human mouth. How many of you have had that? 
It's a salad with those oysters laid across the top. Well, I've learned how to duplicate that. I can make that at home. I can. I really can. And I stopped at a, at a Chinese fish market and bought myself a big box of oysters. Carried them home. Now, what you do is you get all the salad ready first. You shred that real thin. And don't put too much of anything strong in it. I put a few uh, cucumbers, a little radish, and I think that was pretty much it. And two kinds of lettuce. And then I boiled an egg, and I, I cut that egg up because that's always good. And then I, I fixed four slices of low-sodium, low-fat bacon, and I broke it all up, spread it around the two. Now I had them all ready. Then I laid out those oysters. I took a big dish, and I covered it with House of Autry seafood breader, and I laid all 30 of those oysters out of there on there. And then I sprinkled over the top and turned them over. Then I warmed the pan. You don't have to cook them long. You get it hot with just a wee little bit of olive oil, which raises the good cholesterol. And then you put all 30 of those oysters in there, cook them just one and a half to two minutes on each side, then turn them over, and then you set them on top of that. You know, she had 15 oysters on her salad. I had 15 oysters on my, well, I wasn't going to waste those things. You know, you got to eat them when they're fresh. Get them when they're ripe. They were big and plump, and when they're fresh, I can take them and swallow them whole. They just slide right on down. I love oysters. How many of you love raw oysters? Boy, aren't they good? They are good. Now, when I walked in the house with those oysters, she's sitting in her room working on a message for a conference she's doing. And I had already decided I was going to fix supper. But she said to me, I'm on a roll. Do you mind fixing supper by yourself? The great white knight. <laughs> this one, I didn't mind at all. I said, of course not. Man, I felt good fixing supper. Felt better after I ate it. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I mean when I talk about reading your spouse's priorities. Now, I don't always do it right. Man, I've told you about some of the times I've blundered. The second thing we must do is, is pledge yourself that you're going to help your spouse keep those priorities. That's part of your job, to help your spouse keep the priorities, the values they set for life. And finally... Make sure that you recognize the problem of balanced priorities. I have worked at this all my life. And I still cannot tell you exactly how you can do this. Uh, I, I've worked at balancing the demands of a wife, of a marriage, of children, of a job, of church members, of sermons, of, uh, of taking care of myself. I've tried to balance that all. I don't know the answer. I have no easy out. Except that I think the Shulamite woman came to that recognition and she honestly says, now I know why I was so disappointed. Now I know why there was distance between us because I didn't understand how busy he is and I recognize that my beloved has gone to his garden. He's got lots to do, but all the time I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and he feeds his flock among the lilies. He's taking care of business. My theory is that if I keep my wife's cup full, emotionally full, then I get called out for a death call or I have to make a two-day trip. She doesn't go to pieces because her cup is empty. And the key is in keeping it full and showing her she is your priority so that when you're called away and you can't always keep that cup filled, it'll last her until you get back. And when the crisis is over, you can fill her cup and she won't mind. A full cup buys time. That's my slogan.
a full cup. Keep your beloved, keep your beloved's cup full. And then when there's an emergency, she won't be complaining. She knows I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine and he's coming back and he'll keep my cup full. And with God, I believe the same thing is true in our relationship with him. When I assign time to God and I'm walking with the Lord and then something comes up and I don't have the time to give to him, he understands. That is why I said last week, never fall in love with a man who puts you first and God second. Always fall in love with someone who puts God first and you second. And never fall in love with somebody who puts children first and you second and God third. That's what Jesus meant when he said, if a man loved father, mother, and brother, and sister, wife, husband, or wife, his own life more than he loved me, he's not worthy of me. It means get your priorities straight. Keep your, your important priorities filled. Your relationship with God, your relationship with your wife, then your relationship with your children, and your relationship with work will all fall into place. And the model for that relationship is the Lord Jesus. Let's close by looking at John 10 for a moment. And in John chapter 10... This is the great shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. It's that text. But look at six things he says about his relationship with the Father in this passage. Verse 15, as the Father knows me, John 10, 15, even so I know the Father. First, the Father knows me. Get to know the Father. Let the Father know you. Look at verse 17. Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. My father loves me. I'm secure in who I am and what I'm doing. My father loves me. Therefore, I prove it by laying down my life and taking it up again. Verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I receive from my Father. How many times did Jesus say, I don't do my own will. I do the will of my Father. I do the command of my Father. You know, in a relationship, there comes a time where you know each other, you love each other, and there is a, a, a sharing of wills. You're not tugging at each other. You're cooperating together. He's saying, I'm a partner with God. Verse 25, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. <laughs> they tell that I'm from God. Look at my works. Look at what I'm doing. They'll tell you where I'm from. That's why John said, if you cannot love men whom you've seen, how can you love God whom you have not seen? Verse 29, my Father who has given them the disciples to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You know, when I get the farthest down, the lowest, and the most disappointed by somebody in a relationship, I remember that God is sovereign, and I'm his servant, and my work and my character and my life are all in his hands, and he's not going to let the devil take anything away from me. Amen? And the last thing he says, my father and I are one in verse 30. We're one. That's a marriage. <laughs> That's the model for relationship. How Jesus exists with the Father from eternity past, that's the model for our relationship with each other. The Shulamite woman had it right. There was a gross miscalculation, and there was distance and separation. But instead of jumping on him and condemning him, she praised him for who he was and his attributes. And as a result, 
she came to an understanding of why the miscalculation occurred. She had demanded too much of him. And sometimes that's true of the father. Oh, I would, that we could know each other and cut each other the slack of grace. Evie Hill is a great uh, black Baptist preacher in Watts area of Los Angeles. As a young preacher, he wasn't making much money. So he decided he would buy a gas station and run a gas station. <laughs> I tell you, preachers got no business running a gas station. Amen. And his wife said, that's a bad idea. I don't think you should do it. I don't feel any peace. But you're the man. If God leads you, you have to do what God leads you to do. He bought the gas station. Gas station didn't do well. Gas station went bankrupt. And he, he rued the day that he had to go to his wife and say, honey, we're broke. The, the gas station's taken all of our money. We have nothing. And she looked up at him and said, well, she didn't say, I told you so. She didn't say, you should listen to me. She didn't give him a lecture. She said, well, God is sovereign. And God has been always so good to us. And we didn't have much when we started, so it's not all that bad. We know how to get along with little. And let's just praise God. And I know you're a good man, and you trust God. And let's just praise God, and we'll wait and see what God does. Several weeks later, he came home again. And this time, all the lights in the house were out, and it was dark. And as he got near the front door, he suddenly began to see some flickering lights in different parts of the house. And when he got in, everything was lit with, with candles. And there she had the dinner table spread and dinner ready with candles on the table. And so he sat down to the meal and said, well, honey, boom. He said, what have we got here? She said, well, they came and turned the electricity off today. We don't have any lights. But she said, that's all right. It's really okay, she said. Because God is sovereign, and he'll, he'll give us lights when he wants us to have lights. Look, I've been saving all these candles. Look, we got candles. And, you know, people pay a lot of money to go to restaurants and eat by candles. We got candles. He said, I was so overwhelmed by the absolute forgivingness and grace of my wife. And she went on about what a godly man I was, and she knew that I walked with the Lord and that the Lord would provide. He said, in the middle of that failure on my part, I felt affirmed, and I felt like a child of God who was king of the universe. And I tell you, that's the way with a father. You can never outspend his grace no matter what's happened, no matter the distance between you, there's always a way back. God is sovereign. Amen and amen. Let's stand in prayer. Father in heaven, speak to us all that the glory of Christ might flow through our lives, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships, and even most importantly, in our intimate personal relationship with you. Let there be glory in that relationship for Jesus' sake. Amen.